so happy Fourth of July weekend once again, and I'm just curious, has anyone done any traveling yet in the summer? Just to raise a hand if you've traveled. Now, it could have been traveling to the beach, it could have been traveling to the park, maybe here this morning. Um, and if you haven't traveled yet, I wanted to take you to our nation's capital, and I want to show you what I think is one of the greatest parts of our nation's capital. Um, it is the Lincoln Memorial. I say that not just because I'm from Illinois. Uh, I say that because if you've been there, you can marvel at the grandeur, the splendor, the scale of the Lincoln Memorial. It sits on one end of the mall and faces the Capitol on the other end of that mall. It's magnificent. A couple of years ago, our family had a chance to see the Lincoln Memorial. And something that I was struck by was not just the beauty or the scale, but the words that were etched in stone, even in our nation's capital. See, in the North Chamber were the words of the second inaugural address for Abraham Lincoln. And I want to give you a little bit of the context for the words he's going to share. They're in the midst of the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln, as a follower of God, was giving a godly perspective on why the Civil War might be allowed to go on. And these are the words etched in stone in our capital. Here they are. I think they're coming. All right. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Did you catch what he said? Let me break it down as best as I can. Basically, Abraham Lincoln is saying that God in his just judgment may be bringing the civil war for a purpose. That it could be that we have offended the holy and just God so much through carrying on with slavery that he might allow the dissolution of the United States of America as he goes on and says, you know what, we all might lose our lives and bloodshed might continue, but even if that happens, God will still be just. God will still be holy. And his just judgments for what he allows will still be praiseworthy, for he is the sovereign God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's quite the perspective. And now as we flash forward to things in the United States of America here, this is a country that I hope will continue to thrive. This is a country that I love and I want to succeed and do well in the future. In fact, I don't know how many of you have ever traveled outside of our country came back and realized all the blessings that we had. Uh, we recently did that. We went outside the country, came back, and the words of America the beautiful were ringing in my head. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Because as you reflect why we have so much wealth or opportunity, the ability to worship him in freedom, what finally is this a testament of 
not a president, not an economy, not military prowess. Finally, it is a testament to the grace of God who oversees all things and especially still things in this country. And so if you're taking notes, our first takeaway is this. I believe what makes a nation great is that its people stand out for the living God. Those who confess to follow Jesus and commit to that in so many different ways that influences a culture. In fact, the psalmist said this. The psalmist said, How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose to be his possession. And that's what the Word reveals to us. And, and by the way, I want to welcome you, especially if you're new in this place. Um, I know the perspective I just gave, if you don't consider it a Christian, is probably a lot to take in. Um, but what we believe as a, a body of believers is there is a King of kings and Lord of lords. And in his sovereignty, he controls the rise and fall of nations, and he's never yet been surprised by it. But what we also see is that he's a just judge. And there are times when he has brought punishment on various kingdoms because they were an offense to what he was all about. Now, don't ask me what God is doing. I don't know the mind of God here in America or in the future. The Lord's in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But what we do see as we'll get into our lesson is there were a historical time when God very clearly punished a nation because they had rebelled. Ready to get into things? So we're kicking off this series, Stand, and the context of the series is the book of Daniel. And in this context, uh, the nation of Israel was under the punishment of God because they had rebelled against him. They had rebelled by worshiping false gods. They had gone after Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech. They had done uh, what God said was detestable in his sight. And so as we find Daniel, we're in the year 605 B.C., it had not yet been completely destroyed by the Babylonians. That's going to happen in 586. But our context is 605 when there was a siege and Daniel was taken captive as the king at that time was negotiating uh, so the siege would go away. And Daniel is an example worth emulating. Daniel shows us what to do when those around us maybe do not carry the same values that we would carry as Christ followers. And we're going to see Daniel stand out. Not only today, but in so many different ways. So let's turn to the Word now, and uh, as we get into the book of Daniel, can I invite you to stand? And uh, we just do this in honor of, of God speaking to us through His Word. So here it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Again, that's 605 B.C. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. And that was, again, Jehoiakim kind of giving what was necessary at the time so the siege would go away. They weren't completely destroyed. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, 
showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Uh, Daniel's actually writing all those wonderful things about himself. Uh, Anyway, uh, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. We'll talk about what that means. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. These are some incredible words that we get to pick apart. Um, Before you sit down, could you just say out or to a neighbor, you're a standout. You're a standout. Please be seated. So, here's something sobering to think about. Right now is our nation about things that would offend the holy God. What comes to mind? You know, it's interesting that um, some scholars would say right now the the country we're living in is post-Christian. And I wanted to define those terms with you. What post-Christian is defined as um, from the great source Wikipedia. (laughs) Uh, But I like the definition. Uh, Post-Christianity is a situation in which Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion of society but has gradually assumed the values, culture, and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. By that definition, are we post-Christian? I consider just a few things. This year was an incredible rise in homeschooling. I don't know how many of you might have been homeschoolers. And and that's been going on not just because of COVID and not wanting to do Zoom Zoom learning, But it's been going on because many people have felt there's been some indoctrination going on in the public school system that they want to avoid by teaching kids in their own home. When it comes to sexual immorality, it seems that today there are no boundaries anymore. That almost anything goes. And we're getting farther and farther away from God's idea God, who is the creator of the gift of sex, who gave it to a man and a woman in the context of marriage and there alone. I consider substance abuse. Illinois has had a year with marijuana, I think. We consider the rise of substance abuse, whether it be marijuana or alcohol, when it comes to coping with COVID and everything that went on. Or finally, what about us as Christians? Us who proclaim to be Christians. You know, it's interesting when you see statistics, do you want to guess how many people are currently active and weekly worshiping God in our country? A quarter. About 25% seek God regularly through worship. So how bad is it in America? Pretty bad. 
but not as bad as Babylon. Let me tell you a little bit about Babylon. Babylon is so evil that when you read the Bible, uh, it's the epitome of everything that would offend God. (laughs) When it comes to the book of Revelation and God is speaking figuratively as he has throughout that whole book, he talks about the fall of Babylon. And this is representative of every evil, including the devil, who will fall to the king of kings. In Revelation 18, it says, Fallen, fallen is not Frankfurt, is not Chicago, is not United States of America, but it is Babylon. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Part of the reason they were so detestable is they had false gods. They had Bel, which we'll talk about, Nebo, um, Marduk, and in order to worship these gods, what they engaged in was temple prostitution. Um, They were filled with uh, luxuries and arrogance and pride, every kind of avarice. And this is the culture that Daniel is going to go into. Now, a little bit about Daniel. Let's get his background. He is most likely a 16-year-old kid, between 15 and 17, a young man, as he's stripped from his family and thrown into this culture. Because he's going to be in the king's palace and the king has a harem, and he is a handsome young man, as he already identified, uh, many commentators say that he became a eunuch. And I'm not going to describe how you become a eunuch, um, but uh, would not be very fun, probably traumatic. Not only that, but Daniel got a name change. Daniel's name meant, God is the judge. My God is the judge. He's changed into Belteshazzar, And we don't know exactly what it means, but we do know it's a reference to Bel, their false god. Some would say it's kind of like one of Bel's boys, basically. And so all this is going on in Daniel's life. He is at the epitome of what God said was completely evil. And what should he do? Or what about us? Here's a takeaway. I know we're not living in Babylon, um, but I do believe we're going to find ourselves in circles that don't stand for the things of God. And what do we do when that's our friend group, when that's the workplace, when that's the neighborhood, when that's the culture around us? Well, I guess we could say if you can't beat them, join them. I guess we could uh, try to do our best to go incognito and make sure people don't know how, how much we reject everything else that's going on. Is that what the Spirit is informing you to do? Or, or maybe, and I don't know the mind of God, maybe one of the reasons our culture is going a certain way is so that Christians who are at one time wallflowers are now finally fed up. At one time, wallflowers and now become more like um, this guy, Popeye. You remember when Popeye got mad at Brutus? I'm dating myself here. But he said, this is all I can stand. I can stand it no more. And maybe part of the reason God is allowing what he allows is so that what was a, a silent group of Christians who seemed pretty tame would rise up and stand up and say, I can't stand it no more. 
This is what we're going to be about. This is the stand we're going to make in this culture at this time. Regardless, I think we can all repent at one time or another for not standing as clearly as we should. You know, it's interesting in our society how when it comes to the statistics of how Christians spend money or spend their time or engage in sexuality, unfortunately, it's not always much different than the culture around us. And so what's our true hope? Our true hope is a God who stood in our place. Our true hope is that we have a refuge no matter how the world changes. Yes, our true hope is this. Our next fill-in. If the Lord is your God, you are safe no matter the culture. I love the psalmist who said, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And the gospel is this, that our Heavenly Father should have poured out punishment because of our offenses. And yet Jesus stood in our place. And we can hide under the shadow of the cross and know that there is full and free forgiveness for us. Know that we stand clean because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that is our peace and confidence. Not that we will always stand perfectly, but He stood perfectly in our place. And then the comfort goes even further. Your comfort in Christ is this, that no matter how this country changes or the people around you change, in Him you will always find a refuge. In Him you will always find a safe place. In Him you will always find favor and blessing. And I could tell you how He did that for Daniel. Daniel who stood out and God blessed the ways that he did. Daniel who was able to shut the mouths of the lions. Uh, three friends who went through the fiery furnace because God is a refuge for those who find themselves in him. And that's our hope and confidence regardless of how everything goes in the future. But what if we could be more like Daniel? I think it's what this age needs. Those who know how and when to stand out appropriately. And so learning from Daniel and to set this up, I wanted to talk about a book that shaped me uh, quite a bit. Uh, it's a book called Atomic Habits. I, I think I might have even referenced it before. A phenomenal book. And I remember how um, the author went in to describe how you really make change and, and how change comes based on the identity that you associate with. Now, in the book, he was describing someone trying to quit the addiction of smoking. And there were two um, responses to being offered a cigarette that, that someone like this could have. Uh, one response was, you know what, I'm trying to quit, so no thank you. The other response was, I'm not a smoker, no thank you. Now, which person was more successful in quitting, do you think? The one who said, I'm not a smoker. Because the one who said, I'm trying to quit, what were they identifying as? They're still a smoker. Their true mental state is that, you know, this is, is what I still am, but I'm trying to quit. I'm still a smoker, right? And so until you change that identity, you'll always be pulled back 
to this self-fulfilling prophecy over how you see yourself. On a tangent, by the way, as a pro tip for parenting, it's why I never want my girls to rule out any category of life. I don't want to tell them, I'm just not good at math. I'm just not good at this. I'm just, no, don't identify that. God is your power. But as it relates to the lesson, Daniel got a name change. Daniel was changed into Belteshazzar, a reference for who the false god was. But I believe he stood out because he knew his true identity. That even though they took him from Jerusalem and from worshiping the holy God, you can take that boy out of Jerusalem, but you can't take the Jerusalem out of the boy. He was still a follower of the one true God. It's interesting in our, in our country, I was listening to other Bible scholars comment on how Christians reacted this year. And they said more than any other time, it seems like Christians took on the identity of a political party. They took on the identity of a social platform. They took on an identity of a sexual preference. And friends, I need to remind you what your firmest identity is. You are a child of the Most High God. And because of that, you can act as such. Because of that, if your firmest identity is child of the Most High God, not associating with everything else going on, you can have peace. You can have peace because you know who's in control. You know what the future brings. And you know the one who is in control also loves and will take care of you. As a child of the one true God, you can continue to worship and pray and rely on the sovereignty of God. Yes, we stand out by knowing our true identity. But there's more that Daniel does. And as we continue, I think going forward, we're going to need wisdom on which battles we need to face and fight. We need to be very clear on what mountains are worth dying on and what mountains are not. For example, um, I was in the Starbucks line the other day, um, and I was offended by this bumper sticker. My dog behaves better than your kid. Now, I suppose maybe I was just a little bit ornery. I wasn't in a good state. Someone didn't mean to offend me by this. But I debated should I go up and tap on her window? Should I be snarky in my response and show him a photo of my kid? Or is this a battle that maybe I should let go? What do you think? I let it go, by the way. Or how about this? Uh, as we return to baseball games, do you feel that it's your necessity to go into a baseball stadium and be the language police? <laughs> is that your goal? What about this? When you see others who are naughty at a grocery store and they're not in your family, do you, do you make it your responsibility to put that young child in place that you've never met? you got to know what battles to fight, don't you? What's interesting about Daniel is he could have been outraged on every front. He could have said, I don't like this curriculum you're giving me. Because, by the way, they were indoctrinating him with astrology, which was completely against the worship of God. 
He could have been outraged over all the activity that others were doing and said, I can't believe you're doing that. He could have made an appeal for social reform there in Babylon, but it's not what he saw as his place. Where did Daniel make a stand? We had it in verse 8. Look at this. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the special food of the king with wine that he drank. So he sought permission from the chief official so that he would not have to defile himself. Now, what is going on here? Number one, we know that the king's food would be unclean to a Jew. Probably had blood in it. Um, probably had some items uh, like bacon that were not kosher for Jews. But more than that, what we know is that what was served at the king's table was usually offered in sacrifice to another god. And so by participating in that meal, what you were giving off the impression of is worshiping that false god. A Bible commentator had said this, all meals served at the king's table were feasts in honor of the gods. And that's where Daniel would take a stand. Daniel wasn't about telling everyone else what they should be doing and their business, but Daniel was very cognizant of his business and the appearance that he was giving off, the impression he was giving off. And so you know how I think we stand today? We stand by fighting for our own personal testimony. I don't think we need to campaign over someone else's morality. I don't think we need to concern ourselves First with someone else, we talked about that and addressed the mess. But what we can concern ourselves is what we're doing and how we're going about it. And so some examples of this is, is for a, a Christian to go to a company and, and say, you know what, I, I might not be able to get this because I'm low on the totem pole, but Sunday's really important to me. It's the day that I worship, and could you respect that? Or if not now, could you just remember that for the future? for someone in sports, maybe a young kid who says, Coach, you know, um, I really love baseball, but I really love my God too. Do we always have to do this on Sundays? It's for those who are working a job and the job entices them with more money to go past their boundaries that they had committed to their family. And it's for the worker to say, you know what, I don't need that extra dollar. What I need is to be a parent to the children God gave me. I don't know how this works in your own life, but there will come a time and an appropriate place for you to set your own personal testimony, and that is a good boundary to set. That is worth fighting for, your own personal testimony. What's also great about Daniel is he knew the way of going about it. He wasn't snarky. He didn't judge. He didn't say, I can't believe you would have me do that. What are you thinking? He didn't act holier than thou. When he was asking and making his stand, look at his approach. He said, please, he was polite, test your servants. He didn't make demands. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. The manner in which we approach people is so important. Because in the United States of America, as cultures uh, and values continue to shift, how will Christians continue to be respected and validated? Do you know how? Because we showed respect first. We might not agree. It doesn't prohibit us from loving. 
It doesn't prohibit us from looking at someone as a person who God redeemed and is loved by the Most High God. We can still make our stand with humility and respect. But the last principle of how Daniel stood out, he was a man of principle. He was a man of predetermined principle. I love the translation that when it came to this idea of, of, of worshiping another God, Daniel had made up his mind. It wasn't like a debate, what should I do? Daniel knew, I don't do this. I consider the value of having predetermined principles. Um, I remember the campaigns uh, by Nancy Reagan um, uh, to just say no. And that campaign was to try to predetermine that if offered something that I know is illegal or harmful, I'm going to predetermine to say no. I remember growing up in church culture where they said, you know what, predetermine right now to save that gift of sex till you're married. How do we stand out? I think we do it by predetermined principles. That as culture changes, it's not a debate. And we can kind of see where things are going. But we have heard from the Lord and we have deep in our souls an understanding of what should and what shouldn't be, of what is free and what is not, of what God forbids, allows, or anywhere in between. So to close, I have some homework for you. And it starts just with you. It's not your neighbor's homework. <laughs> it's not the culture's homework. It's for you to determine right now where your values lie. Because that's going to be important going forward. The homework is a values assessment that's comprised of two questions. Um, the questions are these. What are my top five values and how are those seen in my activity? Now that's printed before you in the handouts. But it's an opportunity to, to speak with your, your husband, your wife, um, it's an opportunity to put this on a list in your devotion time to call out, wh what do I really value with all honesty? What are those top five and how do we see that playing out? Let me give you an example just so you know what it looks like. Uh, one of the top five might be kids if you have them. And so you might say, you know what, my kids, they're in the top five. How that plays out? Well, I feed them. I bathe them. I tuck them in. I chauffeur them. I, I train them. I give them chores. I do, Right? You know all the activity if kids are in the top five. And that's what you're to do with every one of those five. Now, if you're a leader of a household, if you're mom or dad, I want you to do it with your family as well. That maybe at the dinner table, you sit down and you lead the discussion, what are our family top five and how are they seen? And what might it reveal? For some, it might reveal that you're ready to handle culture change because you have values that are not going to shift. You have values that will stand firm in the face of confronting values. For others, what it will reveal, it might reveal an opportunity for refinement, that you have some good things in place, but you have some other things that are like, oh man, really, that's in my top five? For others might be an opportunity of repentance. 
And by the way, no one is better in this place. We're all sinners in need of a holy God. But maybe it will bring conviction to the point that says, you know what, that might have been how I did things, but it's not how I'm doing things going forward. Not in this country, not in this state of season. May God bless you. May you seek him first. Because he will still be a refuge to all who put their hope in him, regardless of the change that comes our way. And now let me pray for us. So we pray, Heavenly Father, you see our country and you are in control. We ask for your favor upon us and this country. Your will be done, Lord. Regardless of the state of the country, we ask the state of our souls would be centered on you. That you would be the epicenter of our hope and peace. You are our refuge. Regardless of what others do, help us as your people to stand up personally for the things that please you and give us the power to do that. For all the times and ways we have not, we ask for your peace and forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen.